going to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Luke today. And I want to look at Luke chapter 12. I'm going to look at the words of Jesus here. And I believe this is something that is particularly pertinent to the time and the season that we are in today. Jesus in Luke chapter 12 and verse 13. It gives a, a kind of a background to what you're going to hear. It says, Then one from the crowd said to him, speaking of Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And I want to stop there for just a moment, just to kind of lay a little foundation here. Jesus had already been walking through uh, the towns and the, the cities of Galilee. He had done some miracles. He healed the sick. He turned water into wine. He cast out devils, he caused the blind to see, and the deaf to hear, the mute to speak. So, and he had been teaching. The Bible says that they were all amazed by his teaching, because unlike the scribes and the Pharisees, who were, they had a form of godliness, but not denied the power thereof, he spoke as one who had authority. That's the way the Bible lists how people thought about Jesus' teaching. His teaching was captivating because of the authenticity. It was like when Jesus spoke, you just knew it was real. You just knew it was authentic. There was something different about what Jesus said as opposed to just the religious teachers of his day. And so he already had that reputation, and people were looking at him, and some were wondering, could this possibly be the Messiah? I think it's important that we remember that the Jews of Jesus' day understood who the Messiah was. They didn't understand everything that was about the Messiah, and they had some misconceptions about what he would do. One thing in particular that wasn't this conception about the Messiah is the Jews felt like Jesus, if he was the Messiah, whoever the Messiah was, would come with great power and great authority to deliver a physical kingdom to them. They felt like the Messiah would come, and because they were under the rule of Rome, that he would come and he would overthrow the Roman Empire. That at least as far as Israel was concerned, that he would restore the proper authority and power to them. That he would remove the heavy burden of taxation that they were under. And he would bring them back to the glory days of the physical kingdom of Israel, like when David ruled and when Solomon ruled. Now that's a misconception. We're going to see that in a moment. But and we know that from the teachings of Jesus. But that's what people were thinking. So that gives you a little foundation to understand why this person would come to Jesus with this question. They looked at him as a possible Messiah figure. They thought that he had all authority. Whatever he said would go. And that is true about Jesus. But Jesus had another agenda. And so this man comes and says, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance of me. Now that day we know from the story of Jacob and Esau. We know from other stories within the Old Testament that the inheritance of the firstborn son was a huge deal. That not only was something that would make a difference in their life forever from a financial perspective, but it was also something about the identity of that firstborn, the identity of that child. It represented not only their identity, it represented their security, it represented their rights. And so here this brother comes and said, he's got a brother that won't share the inheritance and he wants the inheritance. So we don't know, it doesn't say whether this is the firstborn or not, but we do know one thing. He wants what he feels like is his. He wants something that he feels like will not only set him up financially, but will give him security, will give him bearing within the family and within the community, will somehow make a difference in how he sees himself, and he feels like this is his right. 
But in verse 14, Jesus says something that is very important, not just to this gentleman, but to us. Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now, I want you to understand something. How do you know Jesus is the one that's going to judge the whole earth one day? The Bible says that. He makes it clear. Jesus is the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. The Bible, we just quoted in prayer, the government will be upon his shoulders, and of the increase of his government and of his authority and of his rule, there will be no end. So why is Jesus now saying to this man, who do you think made me a judge and an arbitrator? Jesus is looking at this gentleman and saying, you don't understand why I'm here. You're missing the big picture. I'm not here to make sure that your physical kingdom is set up the way you want it to be set up. I'm not here to make sure that you have a great inheritance of cash set aside somewhere. I'm not here to make sure that you've got the 401k that you want to have. I'm not here to make sure that you've got the vacation home set aside that you need. I'm not here to make sure that this physical kingdom that you put all of your value in and that you get all your security from and that you get all of your identity from and the rights that you think you have within this physical kingdom. Jesus says, I'm not here to judge and arbitrate all that. That's not my concern. You remember when Jesus stood before Pilate? And the Jews, and the reason that he wound up standing there is because he said, hey, this man claims to be a lord and a king, and there's no God, there's no lord that will bow to but Caesar, which was just a twisting that the Jews used for their own purposes at that time. Because they despised the Roman rule as much as anyone else, but they wanted their hatred for Jesus superseded their loyalty at that moment, so it was expedient for them to say that. And because of that, Pilate brings Jesus in and he grills him, he asks him if he's a king, Jesus makes it foundational statement. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, if it were, then those are my disciples. They would take up arms and they would defend me. Jesus even makes the statement at one point that if he wanted to escape the cross, he would call legions of thousands upon thousands of angels to come and defend him and they would do so. He wouldn't have to go to the cross, but that's the reason he had come. And Jesus makes clear to this earthly ruler, Pilate, this governor from Rome, that my kingdom is not of this world. I didn't come to set up a physical kingdom in the temporary realm of society. That's not what we're here for. That's why Jesus told Peter, if you take up the sword, the one who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And Peter was going to try to do that. And I feel sorry for Peter sometimes because when the, when the priest uh, brought the, the, uh, the, the David, whoever the guard, the took guard with him, into the garden of Gethsemane, Peter was going to try to defend him. Remember, he took his sword and he cut off the ear of the high priest servant, Titus. He was ready to defend Jesus. But Jesus already told him that's not what this is about. So Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, and heals the servant of the high priest, even though the high priest's guard had come to take him away. So Jesus is saying to this man, if you're looking for your identity outside of me, you can't find it. If you're looking for your security outside of me, you're never going to find it. If you're trying to establish your rights outside of me, you're never going to find it. That's not what I'm here for. 
Can I tell you something? That hasn't changed. Jesus is still not here to build a physical kingdom. And one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus is going to rule and reign from the new Jerusalem physically. And the Bible says we as his people will actually rule and reign with him. But until that day comes, Jesus is not here to establish a physical kingdom. And if our identity is rooted in things of this world, if our security is rooted in things of this world, if our rights are found in assessing and acquiring more and more things of this world, then we're missing the whole reason why Jesus came. So in that context, he says to him, take heed and beware of covetousness. That's the desire that you have for other people's things so much that it becomes an obsession to you. You can't even love or appreciate the other person because you want so much what they have. He says, take heed and beware of covetousness. Notice this. One's life, real life, does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Your life does not consist in things. I'm thankful for the prosperity we have in our nation. I'm thankful for the freedom that we have in our nation. But my life does not consist in the home that I live in. My life does not consist in the car that I drive. My life does not consist in the TV that I watch. My life does not consist in the phone that I have here. My life does not consist in the clothes that I wear. My life does not consist in things. Unfortunately, for many of us, I think that we've forgotten that. See, Jesus is teaching a fundamental lesson. If you get your life from the things that you possess, there's a problem. Everything that you possess can be taken from you. And if that's where your life is, then you have no more life. It's gone. A good way for you to kind of gauge your life is how, and I, I, I'm guilty of this, okay? But how do you do when life throws you a curve? How do you do when just something in your world that is convenient for you is changed at all? Do we have peace? Is there peace removed because something's changed? Is there joy gone because something's changed? Can we walk in the same love and peace and, and security when everything is all right and our life is turned upside down? If you can't, then you need to reevaluate where your life is at. Jesus says your life doesn't consist in the abundance of the things he says. I circled the word abundance because it's not that Jesus is upset because you have things. But he just wants you to know that your life is not in those things and we shouldn't. Here's the thing. Many times we think, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many times have you thought, you know, if I could just get to this spot, you name it, I'd be happy. Or if I just had this, you name it. I'd be happy. And you have that. And you got there. And it was nice for a while. But then you found out that you're not really happy. You found out that that same gnawing on the inside, that, that lack of peace, that lack of joy, that lack of fulfillment was still there. Jesus said your life doesn't consist in these things. So then he tells a parable to illustrate a teaching. That's what a parable is. It's a story he tells to get them to see his point. So in this parable, he says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plenty. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? 
since I have no room to store my crops. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. And then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now I try to emphasize every time you saw the word I in the words of these rich men. There's quite a few times. I will, I have, I will, I have, I will, I have. And I don't think we realize how wicked that is because if you go back in the Old Testament, you read about the archangel Lucifer. When Lucifer fell from his place in heaven, he makes a lot of statements. He says, I will, I, I, I. I've said this many times before. I want to say it again. The original sin was not in That was where man sinned. That's why man fell. But the original sin took place before Eden. It took place in the portals of heaven when the archangel Lucifer allowed his pride to cause him to sin. Pride is what the original sin was. That pride that obsessed with self above and beyond the awe and the majesty of God. So here this rich man who's been very, very blessed. He has so many things. Matter of fact, he has so many things he doesn't have room to keep it all. And many of you would say, oh, well, I don't have to worry about that because I've got so much that I need. I wish I was in that spot. Yesterday, I was trying to get into my office. I say trying because that just seems to be the place that everything collects that we don't have room for. Yesterday, I was very frustrated because I was trying to get into my office and there were too many things, so I thought, well, I'll go. And then I had to go into another room, and in that other room, there were so many things. And then I had to go into the garage, and I looked around at the garage, and I thought, well, it was just a year or two ago that we cleaned out this garage, and my goodness, look at all the things. I don't even know what all these things are. And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, actually, I wasn't. Actually, I was just very frustrated yesterday. I had to repent over that. But today, I'm sitting here, and I'm thinking, how rich we are. How very, very rich. Now look, by most people's standards in America, I wouldn't be considered rich. But we are. And so are you. You see, God's blessed you with so many things you don't have enough to keep it all. You've got things in places that you don't even know that they are. You don't even know the things that are there in those places. Just move. Anybody who moves, you find out, where did this come from? When did I get this? Why have I kept this? I don't think, what is this? And then you try to throw it away, and then somebody in that place will come in the house with it, too, and say, no, we've got to keep that. We might need that someday. And that's okay. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but here's the point. This man had so much he didn't have room to keep it all. He could have given some things away. He could have just thought about how blessed he was to the city. He said, no, I think I know what I'll do. I'm going to tear down the barns that I have. I'm going to do the barns. 
Matter of fact, I'm going to build my barn so big that I can bring in so much stuff that I never have to work anymore. Matter of fact, I can just sit back and I can look at my stuff and I can just eat and drink and be merry. What's God think about that? You might be surprised that the Bible actually attributes this to God. This is what God said. Modern day Christianity can't handle this, but this is actually what the Bible says. This is what Jesus said to God said to the standards. You fool. Now we know that the Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. So the definition biblically of a fool is to not believe in it or to live your life in such a way as if God is not present. God does not. See, well, I don't have to worry about that because I'm a Christian. I believe in God. I think that Christians quite often live our lives as if God is not existing. How many plans do you make before you pray? And then just ask God to bless you. You see, that's living your life in a foolish way. I'm not going to call you a fool. God might. <laughs> but it is living our life foolishly. It's living our life as if God doesn't matter. It's living our life as if God's opinion doesn't count. It's living our life as if God is not engaged. It's living our life as if God doesn't care. And the biblical definition of that is that it's foolish. Notice that the man is so obsessed with what he has that he misses the real point. That very night, his soul is going to be required. Many of you, and I don't mean to relate to something that's not pleasant, but many of you have heard stories, and I've just begun, things have just begun to pick up enough here locally that I'm hearing stories like this locally now that used to be off in New York City or somewhere else. But just heard stories about people in hospital rooms and their family can't be with them, and they're dying. You know the one thing they want? They don't say, hey, Brandy, can you give me a picture of my car? Well, I'm going to talk to that car. I'm going to see that car. I'm going to tell you. Can you just pull up a picture of that house that I want to see that house? I'm going to tell you. Can, can you bring me a, 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 a read out of my 401k? Can you bring me a read out of my bank account? Nobody says that. What they're doing is they're bringing in phones. Where they can communicate with their family and see them on the last day. Because they can't be there. Because they're That's been happening all across the nation. We're running out, it's starting to happen in particular places like that. Where they're bringing it in and people are communicating with their family about it. And that's all they care about seeing. Isn't it amazing how when things really come home, all of a sudden our priorities straighten out? I, I've been here long enough to see someone that's like that, and I don't know like that. Marsh County Sushi or something like that. COVID has been like that, back forth, and down. But what amazes me is how quickly, after moments like that, when we have these crystal clear revelations of what's important, when life, we want so bad to get back to normal, when we get back to normal, we can get back to normal. We'll neglect our family so that we can earn a little more money and do a few more things. We'll neglect our relationship with God for far less than that. God says, you fool. Get out of the way forever. 
You know, I think, and I'm not going to preach on this today, so far the Lord hasn't said to do it. It will be a, it actually will be a very good message. I don't know if anybody will like it or not. Christians need to get a revelation of death. Don't worry, I'm not preaching about it today. But we do. You know what? Because unless the rapture happens, we're all going to die. One day, we're all going to die. The Bible says it's appointed that a man wants to die, and after that comes the judgment. That is a guarantee. It's a promise. You may not plan to live here many more years, but I don't know. I could be gone tomorrow. And it needs to be a revelation to me. I need to live my life today as if I could be gone tomorrow. That should be more than a country song. That should be the way that Christians live their life. And even more, we sit around all day. He takes the last day. He takes the last day. Do you think Jesus is coming? Do you think Jesus Yeah, I do. He could any time. Well, even more so, even apart from death. What if the trumpet does sound before that? Praise God, Pastor. I'll be out of here. I'm so ready to be out of here. Well, what about your family members that don't know Jesus yet? You realize they're going to still be around? What about your neighbor? What about your coworker? Do we even care anymore? See, my question is, do we really believe this stuff, or is it just something that we like to say when we're in these type of situations? You see, when we really believe this stuff, we ought to live our life for more than just what things we can get, what entertainment we can have, and what joys we can have this side of heaven. Jesus didn't come to set up a physical kingdom here. He came to set up an eternal kingdom in the hearts and the souls and the minds of men. And that's the kingdom that we're a part of. But we've got to live out of that kingdom instead of living out of this kingdom. Because if you're trying to live out of this kingdom, it's going to disappoint It's a foolish way to live. He goes on, and I didn't hear a whole lot of amens, but that's okay. He says, he who lays up treasure for himself is this person, and he's not rich towards God. So Jesus is not against laying up treasure. It's just a matter of where are you laying up the treasure. We should be laying up our treasure towards God. We want to be rich towards heaven, not laying up treasures on earth. Then, he said to his disciples, now he turns to those who are his closest followers, he says, therefore I say to you, do not worry. Let me say it again. Do not worry. One more time. Do not worry about your life. What you will eat. Or about the body. What you will put on. Life, here he says it again in a different way. Life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. For they neither sow nor reap. They don't put things in storehouses or barns, but God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And notice verse 25. Which of you, by worrying, can have one cubit to his stature? You can spend all day and all night worrying, and you can't grow one inch. I promise you that's true, because if you could, I wouldn't have known to play basketball for a long time. But you can't do that. You can't change one thing by word. He goes on and he says this. If you then are not able to do the least, then why are you worried? Why are you anxious? Why are you afraid? Why are you strife about the rest? He says, hey guys, if you can't change one hair from black to white or white to black, if you can't change or add one inch to your stature, 
And notice that God back in my best will be real to me. I do all these things. You can't be one of those things if you do it all the time. You can't do that. But why are you wasting your time worrying about anything else? He goes on to say, consider the lilies. How they grow. They neither tool nor spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not decked out or arrayed like one of these. It did like one of these. Like even one of these. You know, it's a great thing when you see a great sea of flowers. But you can just pull out every individual one. Every individual one is taken care of so much of the business of And God says, think about that for me. You think about the birds of the air. And he says, think about the fact that I, the Heavenly Father, take care of them. You have far more power than me than the flowers and the birds. He says in verse 28, if God so clothes the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? He said your faith is just so small. He didn't say you had none. He said your faith is just so small. Look at how I take care of the flowers. Look at how I take care of the animals. If I can do that, you're far more valuable than that. Why are you worried? Why are you afraid? Why are you upset? Why are you anxious? Oh, you have a little faith. Now verse 29. Do not seek. Do not pursue. Do not go after. Do not obsess over what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things, the nations of the world, those who have no covenant with God, those who don't have a relationship with God, all these things they obsess over, they seek after, they pursue. But your Father, notice that relational word, your Father knows that you need these things. The essence of this teaching is not to say that you don't need clothes and you don't need food and you don't need the necessities of life. That's not what Jesus is getting at. What he's getting at is, don't you understand that God already knows you need these things? And if he knows that you need these things, don't you think that he loves you enough to take care of you and takes care of the flowers of the field and the birds of the air? So why are you stressing? Why are you...